Hey friends, it's Ashley. Before we get started, I just wanted to tell you about the Patreon, which I hate talking about and I feel like I want to crawl into my sweater, even bringing it up, but it's an important way that this podcast stays alive. Through big and small donations from listeners, we're able to bring you interesting and relevant stories about the coffee world. You can donate anywhere from a dollar a month to $25, and your donations are what keep this whole project going. We're going to be talking about the Patreon a little bit more in the coming weeks. So if you can, please consider donating by going to patreon.com slash If you've benefited at all from this show, especially if you're in a position of power, I urge you to consider making a donation. Okay, now on to the show. Hey friends, this is Boss Barista. I'm Ashley Rodriguez. You probably know somebody who loves to speak in generalizations or platitudes, and you're probably really annoyed by them. Think of phrases like, you just have to go with the flow, or everything happens for a reason. These statements mean nothing. They can even go so far as to be insulting in the wrong context. When folks ask what this podcast is, I end up relying on some of those phrases, even though I want to tell people how complex and fascinating and weird the world is, I usually end up saying something like, this podcast is about feminism and coffee. A statement that means nothing. Sometimes it feels callous, even wrong, or like every person who talks on my podcast has the same experiences, and they don't. In the coffee industry, and probably all industries, We use generalizations all the time, but the world is way more nuanced than that. It's way more nuanced than a summation like we need to pay more for coffee or women in coffee producing countries are often overlooked. And that's something that my guest, Amaris Gutierrez-Ray, noticed quickly. We speak way too generally about women in coffee. Amaris is the director of roasting for Joe Coffee in New York City, and she started the Women in Coffee Project as a way to shine a light on the complex and nuanced world of coffee growing for the women who live in producing countries. Women in Coffee centers around narratives and storytelling, often inviting coffee producers to speak about their own experiences. It sort of makes sense that someone like Amaris would crave this kind of primary research, hearing stories directly from their source. She has a background in museum science and archival information and has always questioned where facts and figures come from. For example, imagine reading a study about water from, let's say, Nestle, who has gone on record saying that they don't believe water is a human right, versus a nonprofit whose work centers around accessibility to clean water for all. They'd likely produce some very, very different facts and figures. We get into these ideas of complexity, nuance, and what it means to find solutions to conceptual problems like how we represent members of our community, specifically women, all in this episode. Here's Amaris.
My name is Amadis Gutierrez Ray, and I'm the director of roasting for Joe Coffee Company, but I'm also the founder of the Women in Coffee Project. I want to talk about the Women in Coffee Project and the specifics in a minute, but I want to kind of go outward and focus on just women in coffee in general. So what are some of the problems that women in coffee face? Yeah, it's a great start. So It's a big question. It's a big question. Um, I'll start by saying that the project is specifically aimed at uh, the perspective stories and uh, work of women in producing countries. So it's a little bit less focused on women in the consuming worlds, not to say that they're not comparable. Um, we can talk more about that later, I guess. But in general, I think the big things that I've noticed just from talking to different women in different places are um, some general stability that we might take for granted here, like access to healthcare, um, work year round, maternity leave, that sort of doesn't really exist anywhere. Um, resources, so learning how to do different things or learning where you could get a promotion or learn a new skill or do something different. Those kinds of things don't really exist in the, in like the producing world and not um, for lack of desire. I think it's just like often lack of infrastructure and business resources. Um, Yeah. Things like that. So I think usually they're centered around the business and the roles that the women are in Um, and the, Latin cultures. I've spoken to a lot of women in Central and South America, mostly because that's, I I speak Spanish. I don't speak any African languages. so I haven't really had the opportunity to get too close to or have any interviews with women in Africa, but the, like the basic Latin culture, the machismo culture, even if women are seen as matriarchs or like there's a matriarchal culture, there's still kind of like a lot of machismo and so a lot of the time, I think women don't necessarily feel their voices as valued or their desires are as paid attention to and when it comes to their job. It seems like a lot of the work that you're focusing on is like soft skills, which is really interesting because I think when we talk about women in coffee producing countries, we focus on these like really like tangible things like land ownership, um, like having your hand on kind of the very beginning of the coffee supply chain, but not at the end, um, which is really interesting because it's easy to ignore soft skills. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. I haven't really thought about it in that way before, but I think that's because those are the things that are easiest to measure. So when you're getting reports or statistics from NGOs or research or science-based organizations that are doing, you know, work with coffee plants and stuff, and they have this like social or economic aspect that they're trying to measure alongside of it. Those are the things that are easy to measure. Sure. It's not hard to say like how many women own land because of whatever documents you can get your hands on. But those are uh, like, it's like paper, paper experiences. You don't really have a lot of in-depth or context. And also I will, I will say sometimes those numbers and figures can be a little bit misleading as well. One of the biggest things that um, I've noticed when I'm speaking, speaking to some of these women is that they feel either equal or the majority stakeholder in their business if they're a female producer but sometimes their husband's name is still on the like the deed or the document or the farm name or something like that so and even if the the partner is like oh 100 my wife is um you know does 70 percent of the business and acknowledges openly that it's primarily her effort that carries the business 
it's still kind of under his name. So it's really difficult to tell. Sometimes that's like, um, I mean, it's an obvious thing. And I think some people in the industry are talking about it, but gender equity is actually really difficult to measure because it's expressed so differently everywhere. And that's kind of one of them. Right. Right. And I think another thing that you kind of just hit on too is that gender equity isn't just like an interpersonal thing. It's structural. So maybe somebody in a coffee producing country, even though like the husband and wife duo, let's just say, acknowledge that the the wife or the woman or whoever is doing the majority of the work and they have an equal partnership, maybe the country that they live in makes it difficult for female like landholders or something like that. So there seems to be like another level of like gender equity doesn't just affect like a relationship between two people, but it can be structural as well. Oh, for sure. And that's also something like even in places where um, they're like co-op driven or growers association driven, the women don't really, it's not like done that you don't, that you separate out lots like that. And that's something that's fine with everybody. It's not um, oppressive or they see it as a good thing because they actually feel like they are equal in a group or a co-op, you know, like it's kind of a different, sense of equality and it's more in the individual than the gender um and that's also i think a place where like to me some situations like that could be described as gender equitable and they don't really express as how we might perceive that to be you know what i mean no i see what you're saying um so at what point did you start to notice there was like a gap in the narratives that were being told Well, the first thing I tried to do, so about a year and a half ago, I was looking up something and I was like, oh, how many, you know, like, oh, that's interesting, that fact, how many women do make up the workforce in coffee? And um, it was difficult to find an answer. And then it was difficult to find data that was the same. There was like a lot of different numbers. And maybe I wasn't looking in the right places or didn't really know where to look yet. Or maybe the conversation about gender equity hadn't really gotten that big. I think there's been a lot of really great organizations and I can talk about some of the women who've inspired me later, but there's a lot of good work being done now, but there wasn't really a lot of good information on the internet when I was looking. So I was like, why is that? That's kind of weird. Right. And so I started, um, like I saw a couple of reports and I was like, okay, the woman who wrote this works for, Um, the committee on um, sustainability assessment, I'm just going to give them a call (laughs) and see if they'll talk to me. And then I did the same with a couple of other organizations like the partnership for gender equity. And they were like, Oh yeah, this like this thing that um, depending on who's conducting the research or who's paid for the research, it's kind of hard to get the right facts. And everyone was kind of like, you know, you can go here, you can go here, you can talk to this person, you can talk to that person, but there wasn't really a space where you get, a whole lot of information and certainly not information from women themselves who are in those places and in those roles and like have that experience. So I was like, just, I mean, I started out of self-interest. Like I was like, Oh, I want to learn this stuff. So I'll start this little project for myself to start learning. And then it just overnight, almost not overnight, but really quickly grew into something so much bigger. Well, it makes sense that you would be interested in information, how information is kind of processed, because that's that's what your background is in, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My background is in um, like museum studies and archival policy. I, t- I got a, a graduate degree in that. Yeah. So I was, I'm always interested in like, if there is no information that is more telling than what the information that you can find is, and like, why is that? Um, 
Yeah. So what did this like lack of information tell you? I'm so interested to hear like, how did you not just like look at the information that was in front of you, but also look at the way that the information was presented or who was commissioning the information? Yeah, I think so much of it. I mean, to me, it's a lot, it's a lot bigger. Like if you zoom really far out, just in general, in the coffee value stream, you don't get so much information about, um, so, okay. So if you can tie this to the cost of production conversation, which is really good and really healthy, obviously, um, you don't get, you get the cost of production, right? So you get this idea that the value that can be measured is, um, production. It's a kind of a capitalist view, right? You don't get the cost of success or the cost of um, thriving or the cost of living. Do you see what I mean? You kind of, I think we just are not focused on those values in general. And it is difficult to, we have like language and cultural barriers. I think that's a really big thing. And then we also have this like kind of massive elephant in the room, like poverty in between, like chasm in between us. So either you're an NGO and you're interested in connecting with these people to provide them with resources or you're a capitalist business trying to talk about like, you know, meet in the middle over a language that you understand, which usually has to do with like money and what it costs to produce these things. Do you see what I mean? I feel like there's just like uh, a big difference in culturally in the U S how we see how other people live. I think it's very difficult for us to understand and we're not good at facing things we don't understand. So we access it from ways that we do understand, like the physical representation of the coffee, like the cup profile, the flavor profile, um, the technical details where it was grown, getting as close to the tree as possible, but um, not getting as close to the human as possible. Right. We tend to understand things within the framework that we've been given like our whole lives or the way that like our society operates. So when we ask questions about the world around us, it's often with that framework already in mind, even if we don't intend to. Right. I don't think a lot of people, and I I don't mean to throw the industry under the bus because I really don't think that, um, I think a lot of us don't know what we don't know. I mean, that's like true of every single human being on earth. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and it goes both ways for sure. Um, even in producing world, you know, but I mean, yeah, I'm interested to know that how you take that perspective and apply it to like your own life. Maybe this is like a personal question, but even thinking about the way that you look at coffee, like how do you take kind of your training in archival information and think like, am I asking the right questions? Am I looking at this data from like all perspectives? Gosh, yeah, that's so hard. Um, I think sometimes it just represents as like I second guess myself a lot because I'm like, Oh, maybe there is something there that I don't know. Or like, maybe there is something in the data that I've misread or that I've um, misperceived because I didn't know what I knew now back then when I recorded that information or something like that. So I do second guess myself a lot. And I also try to rely a lot on like just recording, like recording information, sort of writing stuff down um, like in the roasting world, crop sticker curves, um, things like that. I find like archiving my email inbox, um, like a highly tone, like tone skill. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I often like evangelize, uh, you know, to my coworkers about how to, how to do that more efficiently, but yeah, things like that, um, are usually what I, what I do. No, that's, yeah. No, that's super helpful. Um, 
Just to shift a little bit uh, back to women in coffee, at what point did you kind of say, wow, this is cool information that I'm finding out. There's more that I want to know to like a formalized like entity. So I started talking to my, uh, some of my coworkers and I wanted to put something together, but I didn't know. Um, I actually had this, like I wanted to do a bunch of different events all year round. And I wanted to do, I kind of had massive ambition um, that I don't think I'd thought through very much. So I was like, okay, I want to do all these things. And I talked to a couple of people who were like, whoa, it's a lot. Are you sure you want to do all of that? <laughs> I was like, yeah, I definitely do. And then I started thinking through what might make more sense um, for everybody involved, like bringing, or for example, one of my first goals was to invite women from um, coffee land, like coffee producing countries here, because uh, I think a lot of consuming countries spend a lot of money and resources and time visiting countries and they bring back whatever they can. But a lot of the times it's not, um, there's like a lot of context that's lost just because of cultural and language barriers. So it's like, it'd be really great to hear these women's perspectives from the, from the start, from the source, share that with people in consuming worlds. Also give them the opportunity to experience their coffees at the other end, kind of like how we would go cup coffees with people at a lab in Columbia. They could come and cup with us here at our lab in New York. So I was like, I'll do this five times a year, but um, that may not make sense after I was like thinking about it for a while for women who are, have different times of harvest or different times of export and their peak busy season could not match up with other people, you know? So I was like, okay, maybe it needs to be a little bit more focused. So I sort of started massive and then I kind of got a little more focused and a little more focused. And then I talked to a couple more people and they were like, oh yeah, that's a great, that's a great move to be a little more focused. So I had to like really rein myself in and that was definitely a self-editing challenge that maybe I am still in. We'll see. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 easy to have these like big ideas and it's great, um, but it seems like you had to really think about realistically what was possible since your vision was so big. Um, so how like so how would you define like very broadly the goal of your organization? Yeah, the basic goal is to create a platform where women in countries where coffee is produced are able to share their perspectives, share their stories, and share about their work lives. Um, so that's our, that's our vision. Um, and the way that we accomplish that is through panel events like the one I mentioned, um, Instagram stories where we slowly piece together interviews in which the individual gets to share pieces of her life her work life, her personal life, it's totally up to her to share through pictures. So there's words that she composes, pictures that she chooses to share. So it's a little bit um, open. It's not so catered and timed and um, kind of set or standard. It's a lot open to the person and what they what they're interested in sharing. And that gives us opportunity to learn about all sorts of things like um, their particular coffee experience, their work experience, um, any challenges facing their country. I'm increasingly interested in different cultural contexts that um, kind of overlap a little bit with neighboring countries. And this is a really great way to see some of those things. So that's the biggest thing that we do, but all goes back to the main main goal to create a place where women can feel safe and share. And that way we can learn and listen from them. 
It's funny that you talked about context because I just did an interview for a different podcast um, that I helped produce. And one of the things we were talking about um, Thomas Jefferson's brewer, this uh, man named Peter Hemmings. And we were talking a lot about just like how context shapes the stories that we tell. Um, So it's really it's really cool to see other people kind of think really critically about what context means. Um, Because it's easy. Right. Because it's easy to paint in broad strokes. um, But at the same time, like, as you mentioned, even earlier, you're like, I speak Spanish. And most of the work I've done has been with Central and South America. And the context there is going to be completely different. And even looking country to country, the context is totally different. Oh, yeah, for sure. But this is actually really fascinating to me because, you know, there's this, um, it's a fad, but it's a good fad for more transparency and traceability. But I think so much of that doesn't actually make sense unless there's context. There's just, um, it's like unless we have a lot of stuff to back it up, whether that's just definitions of what words mean or um, what those words mean in different countries. You know, there's not so much use to a lot of that. Um, What like You know what I mean? The information is only as useful as the context that comes with it. No, absolutely. That totally makes sense. Um, Can you tell me about... uh that first panel that you did like what oh yeah what were you aiming to do and who did you invite and what were you surprised to learn yeah so the first panel event that we did was this april mid-april and we invited this is also really great i mean i learned so much from doing this but i first started by trying to invite women that uh, were really interested and passionate about it and so i did rely on contacts that i had through my job um through supply streams that I was already familiar with because it was going to be just a little bit easier to reach out. And have- Also, thank you for using the phrase supply streams because I realized that I used uh, supply chains earlier and I'm trying to be better about using- <laughs> That's totally fine. Right, I, but I, but yeah. it's great. I just want to point out that you're using it and it's great. I am, yeah, I'm always super conscious about that because I think it is, well, there's a great like poetic uh, metaphor to stream as well that I really enjoy. You know, you don't step into the same river or stream twice. I think there's like a lot of truth to that in this context too. But um, yeah, so I relied a lot on people I already knew just because I thought there was already a level of trust more or less there because we knew each other. It wasn't going to be as radical as going up to a stranger for the first event like this. Um, And I ended up choosing after uh, like thinking about it for a while too, to invite two women from the same organization in different roles mostly because they would have the opportunity to visit a new place that might be totally new to them with uh, a friend, like with someone that was familiar to them. And then also so that they would be able to build and add context to each other's work experiences, as long as they were interested in that. And they totally were. So I ended up inviting two women from Nicaragua who um, I had a good relationship with already from the same organization, the head of a dry mill there and her chief of staff. So she was more, she's um, sort of like the, in charge of all the personnel. And then I invited two women from Guatemala. One was their head of QC and one was their head agronomist. So they had um, really great, really great backgrounds. And they also had really different roles within their organization. And even though they work closely together, the nature of their work was very different. So I learned a lot just about how teams work in different places, which is really fascinating to me, just like psychologically. But 
one of the best things that happened was that there was a big group of Colombian women who had, because this was the week before SCA in Boston. And I also timed it that way because two of the women were going to Boston. So it kind of made sense for them to fly to the States um, at the same time as that travel to make it a little bit easier on them for their, because they couldn't be away from their jobs for too long. Um, so this group, big group of women from Colombia who were there for SEA also came, and that was really cool. Um, and I invited a lot of people, and I had the really great opportunity of um, being given a space at the Food and Finance High School in New York. Um, they have a really great organization there that tries to get kids more involved in what's going on in the agricultural world early on. Um, so they have a school cafe, like a little school cafe. And so oh, they were so cool. <laughs> yeah. So this, the kids who run the school cafe were like open until the, like they open after school, even though they don't usually do that, um, to like serve people who came to the event coffees and stuff. And a couple of them stayed and that was really cool and really nice. Cause I was like, yeah, a lot of this also doesn't really matter if we're not sharing it with as wide of a group as possible because gender equity things in agriculture, like the people who really need to probably engage more are people in like who consume a lot of stuff, you know, and a lot of people in coffee, maybe you're already well-versed in some of this vocabulary, or maybe you're already making really great choices with like any consuming behavior that they do in their regular lives, you know? So I was like, this is a really great way to encourage more engagement um, at a high school level. That's awesome. So some of those people came and then a lot of people in coffee came definitely a lot of women, um, which was really great, but it was a pretty diverse crowd. And the women who were speaking on the panel, um, they had been really nervous when I first met them, but they wanted to stay together. And so they chose to stay together in an Airbnb the two nights they were in New York and get to know each other the night before. So they had a level of, like, this was their their decision as well. So they would have a level of mutual understanding before they even got on stage because they wanted it to really be like a unified front to talk about their experiences, which was just so inspirational. Yeah, so the whole time I was there, it was incredibly humbling to hear about that, yeah. It's really cool, and I never considered this until you mentioned it, that you invited people in pairs. Yeah. Um, Which I, I don't think that a lot of people ever think about. I think most people are like, well, I can only pick one person from this organization, one person from this organization to speak at whatever panel I'm doing. So can you talk a little bit about that decision? Cause it was very intentional. Yeah. Um, I had been thinking about it, but I also wasn't really sure. Cause I didn't want, I was like of two minds. I was like, I didn't want to downplay someone's role because I didn't want to say like, Oh, I'm so excited to work with you. Also, can you recommend someone else that you work? You know, like I didn't want to say that their experience wasn't unique and valid if I didn't know them. So I started first with inviting the the woman that I know the best, Eliane Mirish. She's the um, woman I had the closest relationship to before that. And we were talking a little bit about inviting Hazel, her chief of staff. And she was like, oh my gosh, please, I would give up my place. I would, you know, try to find a way to pay for myself. I would, you know, do all these things if um, it meant that Hazel would get to have this experience with me because she'd never been to New York, you know, all these things. So I was like, of course, that like her response made me so... It gave me all the confirmation I needed that that was probably the best choice. And then from there, I approached the women in Guatemala to say, this is what I'm thinking about doing. And they were really on board with that, too. And mostly because, so Elian speaks English and Spanish. Hazel only speaks Spanish. The two women from Guatemala, Melanie speaks both English and Spanish, and Dulce only speaks Spanish. So it was also a great thing to have an ally so that when they were traveling, you know, they had someone who was able to communicate 
for them if that was a you know ever an issue. So it kind of made sense. I'm not sure if that'll always work out in the future, but it really also made sense that like between the two of them, they were able to communicate and it was totally fine. And I think that also gives someone a little bit more sense of like confidence when they're in a strange place. Right. Because as you were, you were mentioning earlier, like Eliane was mentioning that like her, uh, the one that she worked with had never been to New York. And I can only imagine like, I would feel deeply uncomfortable being on a panel in a country where I do not speak the language. Oh, totally. Um, and you, it also just like opens up, uh, the opportunity to hear from voices that you might not hear from, like, um, like you mentioned, um, Eliane from Finca's Mirsch, who yeah. I've met before, and she's she's on like tons of panels. Not that she's like she's valuable in every one of them every time I see her, but I mean, how many times has her? I was it the person who runs the mill or her chief of staff? Her chief of staff, yeah, Eliane her runs chief the of mill. Staff. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, so how often has her chief of staff? how often have we heard from this person? So it's really interesting to think of like creative ways to make sure that we're hearing from as many voices as possible. Yeah. And that was actually, um, it worked out. I didn't plan it intentionally, but um, Hazel is young, you know, she's like um, a little bit younger than me. And then on the panel too, or was Dulce, she's, um, and I mean, she's like famous now. She was like the Guatemala's cup tasters champion. She was in the top four, like world cup tasters. Um, and she's, you know, she's a 40 year old woman and she has an amazing perspective. She's been in the industry a while. She's incredibly hardworking. She's a single mom. Like there's so many things about all the women that were on the panel. There were so many things that were so familiar to like all women everywhere. I was like, this is everything we're talking about applies to just everyone I've ever met in my entire life. Who's a who's female, female identifying. What, what, so what's next for you? Like, what are you going to do next? So I took a little hiatus over the summer because um, work got a little intense, but I'm back um, planning for the future now. We have some events lined up, some fundraising events lined up. I have, um, I did a lot of travel for my job over the summer. And so I tried to make a lot of connections and started to speak to a lot of different women, um, setting up a new interview process um, that was a little bit more manageable from afar, from great distances. So I have quite a few interviews lined up and I'm still just kind of waiting to piece a few things together. And I think my plan is to try to release those or encourage them to like kind of like Instagram takeovers all the way through the spring. And then once I start, I think probably within this pool of interviews that I'm doing right now, we'll be able to start extending invitations for the next panel event and start working with them. I never really want to set the date before speaking to them about what their harvest schedule and lives look like around those times. Um, so once we start planning for that, we can set a time and do that. But I also want to try to do a little bit more work overlapping with women who are in organizations that benefit women in coffee producing countries, like Grounds for Health that provide free cervical cancer screenings for women in coffee producing areas, um, which is amazing. That's sort of one of the answers to the health insurance issue that uh, I mentioned earlier. So things like that, I want to try to do with things that can also benefit those organizations that are more focused, but um, are definitely doing good work. And very few people, I think, really know about their efforts. So you mentioned your job and how busy that's kept you. And I wanted to kind of focus on how you incorporate 
this kind of work that you do with like your nine to five, I mean, for you, it's like, like seven to seven because you're yeah. probably always working. Um, but you have like a really big job and yeah. you work for a big organization. So I wonder, and I think for a lot of people, like they might have these like big ideas about things that they want to do. And they're very hesitant to, to like figure out if they're like, you know, employers are going to support them or like what role like their employer maybe even sees in helping them or not helping them. Um, so I wonder, like, how did you approach this with like your employer? At first, I wanted to investigate how we purchase coffees and if we'd ever considered purchasing with a gender equity component to our sourcing strategy. At this time, I like I wasn't in my current role. So I was just kind of curious. Um, I wasn't challenging. I just was interested in how the company had thought about this before. Um, and they had thought about it. It wasn't something uh, it was something that they had done before, but it wasn't something that um, they were trying to make um, happen in any way that was like intentional or written on paper. It was kind of like amazing. If we can support this female producer, let's do it. Um, and then whenever those coffees came around, they came around, which is, I think a fine. I mean, it's, it was on their radar. I think a lot of people do that too, but I was really interested in being a little bit more intentional. And also because of like what I mentioned earlier about data being skewed, maybe because of who was planning for that or paying for that research, I was like, maybe it would benefit me to start from a nonpartisan perspective and then see like if my company wants to be a part of it. So I came up with a lot of ideas. Um, this is also when I was in like the big ideas, like big capital B, capital I ideas stage where it was probably a little bit unrealistic. And then I figured out how I wanted to do it. I thought about creating a website and some things like this. And then I asked them one of the biggest things that I was most interested in getting help with was um, like a, a place that wasn't my personal bank account to hold funds that we could use for fundraising. Cause I figured um, it has a little bit more legitimacy. If I can say that, you know, I I'm having financial support from a company and if you donate to me, it doesn't go into my personal bank account. Cause I am, I'm like trying really hard to not be, um, you know, an NGO that has to start in like a really like suspect sketchy, um, you know, like unknown bank account kind of thing. And I don't think that's something people would have assumed of me, but I was still like, I want to start right. You know, I want to be like as fiscally responsible from the get go. So I asked them for support in that way and they were super responsive. So my immediate supervisor was, um, like, how can I advocate for you? How can I push for, um, you know, any kind of resources you might need? How can we encourage the rest of the company to get involved and give you support because you are working a lot? And so I started this little like task force and then I ended up calling it a subcommittee. I don't know what like the greater arching committee was, but to see if anyone else was interested in helping me. And I did get a few support um, supporters from people who worked at Joe who were really interested and they were like, yeah, how can I help? And I was like, oh, I don't really know how to work Instagram. So I had someone help me <laughs> set up an Instagram. Um, and that was really great because when I was starting, I had all these ideas, but I definitely did not have the bandwidth to execute a lot of them. Or I knew the little things that I wanted to accomplish, but there was still like a couple of big things to work out. So I got like a fundraising platform online. I got my website up. Um, someone helped me with the design of the website because um, I'm terrible with colors and things like that. So I did get a few amazing um, like hours of support from 
people who are really kind. And I think I wouldn't have really had that if I didn't have the support of my company. It probably would have taken me a little bit longer to put those pieces together. And that was really great. So I think one of the biggest things that my supervisor told me to start with was like, write down on paper a lot of your goals, just like itemize it. Because what matters most is being able to express what you want to achieve to somebody else. I don't think you'll have a lack of support. But in order for someone to serve you efficiently or actually serve you well in a way that you need, you need to be able to tell them what you want to accomplish and how you want to get there. And then they can be like, oh, yeah, I know how to do that. Because if you just say, like, can, can anyone help me? It's just a little bit more difficult to figure out or like just asking for money, you know, you need to be able to show what you want to achieve. And that's, I think that's helpful for anyone in any creative enterprise, like making sure that you can express what you're trying to aim for. I mean, it's helpful to individuals too, I think, but that in itself was a massive lesson. No, it's something I, um, it, it reminds me of this thing that you learn when you, I was a middle school math and science teacher before I started making coffee and something that they teach you is this idea of backwards planning. So if you have, you know, you're doing like eight weeks on algebra, like you start at the end, like you're like, I want students to be able to do this thing. Now, how do I work backwards from that point as right. opposed to like, okay, I have this really big problem in front of me. I have to teach these kids algebra. Like, how am I going to do that? But when you start kind of at the end, you're like, okay, if this is my goal, how do I go backwards? That feels a lot more right. tangible. Right. Fast forward, like two years later, and I went and saw um, Tamika Lawrence did this presentation of this gals workshop, gender action learning system. It's like a community oriented learning workshop for people in um, coffee producing countries. It's like business planning. You're like, okay, like five year plan. That's insane. And that's like a big thing to say, but like in five years, do you want to, uh, your business to be self-sustaining? Amazing. Like let's start working piece, piece, like piece by piece backwards. So in four years, what does that mean? Does that mean you have like, you know, a staff of four people? Oh, great. You know, you kind of go back for three years. So they do that big, like massive business planning exercise where, yeah, you start at the end and work backward. Um, and that helps that's, also that's everyone in like the community and like everyone in the households, like both, you know, husband and wife, if you're talking about like, you know, a gender system, like understand like, okay, we have the same goals. Like we're the same in this. We have the same stake. Like how do we both get there? Did you ever feel at any point that like, cause I think kind of going back to the idea of like having a full-time job, but also having like a side hustle, which is like, I think the story of pretty much everybody in coffee, yeah. like, did you ever feel that those two were like at odds with each other or that you couldn't talk to somebody at work about like a different thing that you were interested in? Um, no, I never thought that I couldn't talk about what I'm interested in, but um, I definitely think that occasionally it's a matter of prioritizing your energy. There's only so much as a human being you can fit into like one 24 hour window. And so I think sometimes if I got really excited about something at work, then the women in coffee project would just kind of get pushed down the list and it go, and then it would go like back and forth. You know, I would be like all in on something I was learning about the women in coffee project. And I would have like 12 tabs open um, for like um, PhD dissertations that somebody wrote about like gender in Ethiopia. And I would not be doing any of my work emails. And I, I'm constantly struggling to figure out where the balance is. I don't think that probably will ever change, but I do get a little bit better slowly over time. I definitely have noticed in the past year, it's gotten a little better. That's more where I see they're at odds. It's just my own 
interest. If I'm excited about it, that's all I want to read about. It is interesting, though, that you mentioned looking at your business from like a gender equity perspective, and if that was any anything in like the business model. So like, has that has that shifted or evolved? Or is that something that like, maybe somebody who's listening to this, who runs a roastery could be like, Oh, maybe that is a perspective I need to take or something I can think about for my business. Yeah, I think intentionality is really important. And I think that there are people who have, um, I feel like the big thing is that now, um, so now I'm in my role, which is really great, I can actually execute some of the change I want to see, or investigate some of the topics that I want to see, um, like uncovered a little bit more through some of the coffees we purchase. And I think my coworkers really see that this is something I'm passionate about. So it's in innate, it's not a strength, but it's something I'm already tuned into. So I think if you're in um, a work environment, somebody's great strength is usually tied to something they're really interested in and not something that they would like almost do for free, but it's kind of like toward that. end. you know what I mean? Something that really is exciting to them. And so I think for us now, now that I'm in the role that I'm in and we're sourcing coffees, I think, you know, now we get the opportunity to share so much more. Like we get to share the stories of every single person behind a coffee, or if it's a cooperative, um, you know, who are the women that are behind some of these coffees in any small way. So that's something that I've definitely taken on just because I'm interested in it. Um, and I think it's been really, it's been received really well. And so I think maybe like to roundabout way, um, go back to your question a little bit, is that like, I do think when this is something I haven't seen in too many companies, but you should be passionate about what you're doing if you're a green buyer. And I think you should be really keyed into a lot of things that are going on. And those are the stories that you should be telling when you're releasing coffees. And that's the kind of context that a lot of people really are interested in. And I don't want to say like every consumer ever is going to want to know like what their coffee's value is and not just monetary, but you know, the human aspect as well. But there are a lot of people where like if, the industry as a whole is concerned with who's responsible for paying more for coffee now and also in the future when we know prices are kind of probably going to keep going up. How do we share that responsibility? And I think a lot of the time it just comes from talking about like the value of the people behind the coffee in a way that isn't really being done before. It isn't really enough to kind of rely on however coffees have been released before. You know what I mean? I feel like there's a lot more work that we can do to be creative, to be innovative. Um, right. And usually it should come from a place of passion, you know, it should come from a place of like, yeah, this is what I want to talk about all the time when I'm hanging out with my friends, you know, like my friends, like, trust me, they hear way more than uh, I think they probably want to about some of this stuff just because it's, <laughs> it's interesting, you know, and it's the same with like, you know, all your friends that you care about, like my partner has a, a crazy music label and I don't listen to the same music that he does at all, but he's really excited about it. So of course I'll listen to it, you know? So I feel like it does start there, you know? Something that, and I kind of want to um, end on on this note is, I think people kind of forget how impactful storytelling is for for two reasons. Um, number one, we all relate to people's stories. There's always like a human element to every story that's being told, and you can kind of see yourself in almost every story. But number two, um, it removes a lot of the like like the showiness of a story to have someone else tell it for themselves. So instead of like, 
you being this like green buyer in a first world country, um, telling the stories of other people, um, you're kind of removing that barrier and saying like, no, these are not my stories to tell. These are the stories that are being told by the people living them. Um, and I think that that's really, really critical. So I wonder how you think about storytelling and making space for people to tell their own narratives. It's hugely important. Um, one of the biggest things that I'll just give a quick example is that we create these info sheets for our internal staff when we release a coffee. So folks know more about the technical details too, but also if they want to know more about the story, it's like a start. It's not a massive document. It's, it's relatively short, but it's our opportunity to give um, baristas, everyone who has to kind of talk a coffee up to somebody or explain a coffee to somebody, give them the information that they need to do that effectively. Um, also a great exercise in self-editing if you're me, but um, one of the biggest things that I've been doing is uh, we've been trying to translate them whenever possible. So translating them into Spanish and then sharing them with the producer, the person we purchased the coffee from and say, like, can you just, can you just check to see that the facts are correct? And I've definitely noticed that like my memory is not infallible. So I was writing this info sheet and I passed it along and they were like, Oh no, that's not, you know, this is this, that's not, um, that's not right. What you mentioned. And it was really humbling because I wasn't even sharing information about them and their story. I was sharing like, this is where we were. This is like um, the mountainside that we were driving up, you know, that kind of thing, just like basic, the technical specs. And even that is like, not something, um, you know, of course they know it. So like they're the experts of their own coffee. So they should have the opportunity to be a part of that storytelling process. You know what I mean? So then, so then that's like even more, of a reason to really rely on the person sharing their experience because they're the expert in their own life for one. Um, but they also know so much more than we do about everything that goes on from climate change. You know, we talk about it loosely, but there are real symptoms of that, that they can speak to. I feel like those are really big concepts that I shouldn't attempt to share for somebody else. Um, yeah, it's really, really amazing to see too, that there's not, um, there's not an agenda, like speaking with somebody, you can kind of push the conversation in any direction that you want because you're asking questions, whether they're based out of your interest or um, like from conversations you've had with them before, but kind of letting them take control of the narrative takes it to a place that's um, so much more informational, I think. I totally agree with you. Uh Amaris, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk with you. Thank you, too, for all the work that you do. I love this podcast and everything you do. Oh, that's sweet of you to say. (laughs) (laughs) Boss Barista is made by me, Ashley Rodriguez, in collaboration with Good Beer Hunting, which is an industry-leading design studio, editorial platform, and podcast examining all the ways we look at the things that we eat and drink. You can check out more at goodbeerhunting.com. Seriously, their stories are incredible. My favorite series right now is the Humanity and Hospitality series that they've been running for the past couple of months, examining different ways that we look at people in the service industry. Special thanks to Jesse Raub and Jordan Stalling. Also special thanks to our music contributors, the band Lost in the Sun. You've made this podcast sound incredible. I'm just looking for a band.